and we're back and we're black right and today i'm talking to sharon lewis and well you may have to look for her a little bit when you google her because of all the other awesome sharon lewis's she is the director of the upcoming film brown girl begins what up yeah so and, as long as you look for the sharon lewis you'll be all right okay you'll be all right yeah, all right. so the Sharon Lewis is your domain for your website as well. Yeah, that's right. Excellent. Yeah, and tonight you're getting prepped for an upcoming talk. Yeah, I'm doing a thing called uh, Black Women's Gaze, and there's an awesome uh, organization called Band, Black Artist Networking Dialogue, and they're putting together this panel about Black women in the media. You know how we see ourselves and how we're seen, and my whole talk is going to be about we're either seen as whores, over-sexualized women, or we're seen as mammies, asexualized women. We don't have any sexuality, and uh, and it's rare that we see both. And just to sort of lead into that, that's from 6 to 9 p.m. on Thursday, September 14th, if you Google banned Black Artist Networking Dala. That's part of the reason I did Brown Girl Begins, is that I really, really wanted to tell a story of a young black woman who's complicated and complex and is in love and wants to, you know, uh, find love and wants to have sex like a young teenager would. And at the same time is smart and intelligent and a daughter to her, you know, to her mother and to her grandmother and has all those responsibilities of being a priestess. I just wanted to see a complex, complicated, beautiful black woman on screen. So an actual fully realized human being. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, how exciting is that? That's, and we need more of that. Everyone yeah. needs more of that. Yeah. Yeah. Representation is so important. I was at a Q&A for a film that Michael Grayeyes was in, uh, Woman Walks Ahead, and he was talking about how the casting process, they really did the extra legwork to get, you know, people of that background people who spoke Lakota language mm. and the refrain is the same from you know women of color indigenous people mm -hmm. it's when you see yourself reflected back with the opportunity to play fully realized characters and not just you know one aspect that's the only thing that's been shown it really makes a difference last night at TIFF, Rude which is a film that I starred in in 1994 directed by Clement Burgo had Michael Gray Eyes in it. And Clement told a story last night about Michael Gray Eyes that Clement wanted to be really sensitive to the fact that we were starting the film with this First Nations person dancing in the film in traditional wear. And Michael Gray Eyes was, wrote it and choreographed it himself and chose what he was wearing. You know, so even that film 22 years ago opens with Michael Gray Eyes honoring the space in Toronto, which I think is groundbreaking. 22 years ago, people weren't doing that. No. They weren't even honoring the First Nations people. So, um, yeah, I agree. We need to do that. And the only way that that happens is when you have people involved in the creative process, not after you've already cast it and after you've already written it. And when you let them have a voice in the production as well. So yeah. you're not just hiring someone where it may have been written even if it's written by a person of color, if it's written by somebody with, you know, maybe not the same gender or same upbringing, you'll find that you'll get feedback if you allow 
the collaboration from the artists. Totally. And you can feel that, don't you think? Yeah. I feel that when I'm watching a film. I feel the authenticity. I feel the fluidity of that when you you know an artist is involved in the process. I haven't seen Detroit, and I know Detroit had a lot of controversy around it. Have you seen it? No. Under self-care right now, I've kind of hit my peak for uh, real-world events being emotionally taxing. So I only have so much left in the tank every month for seeing films or consuming media about uh, fictionalization of other events true. that happened. Yeah. True, 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 true. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a strange space right now, even building my schedule for the festival. I try to have my list of things that go to my criteria, which is, um, is there a woman above the title, behind the camera? Are there people of color involved? Are there LGBTQ people involved? Uh, is it about a topic that you don't normally see? Uh, but then still you need to, you know, pad out your schedule with, and sometimes it's just because it's a schedule what fits in that spot, but you need to pad it out with things that you can just relax and laugh sometimes and not, you know, have the weight of the political climate, you know, taking you down. I agree. I agree, which is self-care. Yeah. And it's sort of why you do TIFF. Yeah. So absolutely. that you can do like those little nuggets of, of um, fun and entertainment, like the Sammy Davis Jr. documentary. Yes. The only and reason I won't be going to your panel is because exactly. of the Sammy Davis Jr. documentary. Yeah. And I can't hate on you for that. Yeah. But yeah. I will definitely attend band in the future. I just found out about it. So I'm super excited to know that there's something like that going on in the city. And that's the other thing with conversations like this. It gets the word out about activities that are going on and initiatives that maybe people would love to get involved in, but they aren't aware because mm -hmm. they don't get the coverage or they don't get talked about often enough. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a resurgence going on in Toronto. I think maybe a reaction to what's happening worldwide politically yeah. that we're sort of um, uh, getting together more. I think that there's a focus on community there in south of the border and also here in terms of getting our voices heard and being seen. Yeah. And the conversations you have with people now, they're a lot more open to uh, being not just educated, but I'll use the word Chris Rock did in his Q&A for good hair, edutained. Right. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with a little edutainment. Yeah, yeah. Nothing wrong with that. It doesn't always have to be deep, dark, and heavy. You can laugh, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. or it can be deep, dark, and heavy and laugh. Yeah. But back to Escape, I think your movie is sort of the perfect kind of synergy of representation, but also escapism, because you know, fantasy and sci-fi, those genres are a great way to sort of paint an allegory over real issues. So, yeah, I hope so. Cause I think that the, it's a coming of age story really, right? About this young black woman who's living in this dystopian world, basically on an island off the coast of Toronto. So that's the world. And that world to me is Detroit, is Ferguson, is uh, Toronto, certain areas of Toronto. It could be, you know, Spanish Town, Jamaica. Like it's any area, we call it the burn in the film, any area that is economically depressed, but most importantly, socioeconomically um, segregated. 
from the mainstream. And that's kind of the world that we're showing in that city. Because it's not just about, I don't have a lot of money. It's that you literally live in another world. I used to teach foster children in LA. And they lived about a five-minute bus ride to Hollywood. And the bus costs, at that time, I think it was 25 cents um, to go to Hollywood. And one of the exercises that I would do with them is, what's your dream? And I would say... Mm, 10 out of 20, so half the kids would say to go to Hollywood. Can you imagine to get on a bus and go five minutes away from your house was their big dream. And it wasn't the 25 cents that was stopping them. Because I was like, is it the 25 cents? Because I will give it to you right now. It's not the 25 cents. They were like, we don't belong there. We feel weird there. What would we do there? Right? So I feel like Brown Girl Begins is trying to present that world to an audience and go, this is what it looks like. It's a dystopia and it's in the future, but it's right now when you don't feel like you're a part of the mainstream world. So then how do you cope? Yeah. And then the, the story is so close to what's going on right now. I went to University of Windsor and even going to downtown Detroit back then before things got really bad, you could feel, especially the downtown core, right when you get off the tunnel bus, yeah. it was very much kind of, pre-apocalyptic like a staging ground for a dystopian film you wouldn't have to do much uh, location scouting you could have just set up a camera and shot anywhere there well it's have. funny that you say that because now hopkinson wrote the book brown girl in the ring which the film is inspired by right so i auctioned the novel from uh now hopkinson and then took 15 years to make the film but one of the things that she said when I interviewed her was that she was inspired to write the book from what she saw in Detroit in the 90s. So it's funny you bring that up because that's exactly what happened. So I did go on location scout. Before I decided to shoot in Toronto, I went to Detroit to see, should I just shoot it there? And it is apocalyptic. Like it was, you're right, it was a point and shoot kind of thing. The only reason I didn't do it was that I thought, so many times as Canadians, we think we don't have the issue here. And I thought it always gives us an excuse to look at the at look south. And I was like, no, we're going to shoot it here. And it's going to be in Toronto, just like Nala's book, so that we as black Canadians go, oh, the issue is actually here as well. Absolutely. There's pockets. Even I, the Queen Streetcar is a perfect example. If you ride the Queen Streetcar from end to end, you see every kind of socioeconomic mix that can happen in Toronto. So you can go from the straight up bouge of the beaches, which I can say kind of since I live here now, uh, <laughs> to, you know, the that middle area when you go past Moss Park. And it, it takes a real, like a quick turn. And then you head into, you know, Eaton Center, Financial District, then downtown, then West End, which is, in sort of, I'd say, the second half of a fairly aggressive gentrification. But then there's little pockets that, for whatever reason, uh, defy gentrification's attempt to uh, do social shaping. So that corner at Bathurst and Queen there on the northwest side. And then like, going into Parkdale. Yeah. There's still pockets in Parkdale where it's like, yeah, you, you will not be gentrified. <laughs> we will not be gentrified. Yeah. yeah. Just come yeah. and try. Yeah. 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 And you are trying and we ain't going there. Yeah. 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 And that's what we wanted to show in the film that, that it's not, um, 
it's not so far away. You know, I think as Canadians, we always kind of feel like, oh man, that's not, mm, that's South. That doesn't happen here. We don't have racism in Canada, do we? Yeah. God. Yeah. So it was important for us to do that, even though a lot of times it's harder to sell a film when you actually say this is a Canadian city. I think that will change and it is changing. Um, last night I saw Shape of Water and Guillermo talked about how this was a film. He called it a Toronto film with a Mexican in the middle. The film was shot here. It's very obviously there's some shots where you can see there was a great meta moment. There's a couple of scenes in the Elgin and it's premiere was in the Elgin. What? And the audience had a fairly strong reaction. Yeah, yeah. So... Okay. And there's some stuff that's sort of underneath the gardener that's very obviously there for anyone who's ever had to cross the street under the gardener and felt a bit sketched out. Yep. Yeah, so it's very much the Toronto is all over that, even though it's set. Uh, I think it's sort of set in a 1962-ish kind of U.S. kind of vibe, but it just it doesn't hide the Toronto the way other films do. Mm. Yeah, I think Guillermo de Toro is a big fan of Toronto. Like he shot the strain here, and he talks about Toronto all the time. And yeah, that he likes shooting here, and that he likes the fact that it's a big city, but also a safe city compared to American cities. Yeah, and it helps too when uh, established directors sort of set up camp here for a while and do subsequent projects, because it helps also build the talent pool. Totally. Yeah. So I did yeah. want to talk to you about that talent pool because it looks like your crew, at least from watching the behind the scenes stuff, was a great mix. Like they looked super happy in sort of your team photo near the end of that video. And after watching the trailer, I was looking at just the way the colors pop mm. and the way you could see everyone's expressions, even in some of the night material which is sometimes a challenge when you're watching things with people of color or even when the trailer comes out. Because I even noticed in the Black Panther trailer, there were some shots in the trailer, and I'm hoping this is you know, resolved when the film comes out. You couldn't always see all the detail. And that's, I think, a challenge when the lighting and how it's assembled doesn't consider that we are different and there are different shades of us even. So it's I'm such a big deal. It's such a big deal. I'm so glad you brought that up because as an actor, I have gone through the makeup chair where they don't know what to do with my hair and the, and the, the fear on their face when they say, and I have a lot of hair. I got like big hair. So when they see that, you know, that you, you sit in the makeup chair and they're like, I have no idea what we're going to do with her hair. And they would then make my lips smaller or they would put on foundation to make my skin lighter and ashy and all kind of stuff. So it starts as soon as you go in the makeup chair. So I loved the people that we had doing hair and makeup. They were folks who know how to do folks. They, um, and not just that, the makeup room is the first place an actor goes into. So, and it's where they actually spend most of their time before they go on set. So if that vibe throws you off, your performance is already thrown off. But I would walk into that makeup room, makeup and wardrobe, and they would be dancing. And then um, Jennifer, who was one of the hairstylists, she would bring in some Caribbean food and, you know, um, uh, cuckoo and okra and whatever. <laughs> and so, you know, imagine that vibe as you go in there that you're already starting to feel like part of a family, you're feeling relaxed. That is a privilege 
that most uh, people of color and Caribbean actors do not get in Canada. So right from the get-go, that was, it was beautiful. That vibe was beautiful. You had dancing, you had people who knew how to do your hair, you had people who knew how to make you look beautiful. And then we move from there, and then you go on set, and you have me who knows how to chat to you, how to talk to you, what I'm doing. The first AD was Caribbean as well. Our, our second camera was Caribbean. Our DP was not, but we spent so much time talking honestly about how to light black skin and how to make it beautiful. And in fact, before we started shooting, we went to a workshop. Ava DuVernay's DP, who also did DeRee's first film, um, which was Pariah, he lights black skin beautifully. And then he also did Selma. And I was like, we went to go see him and I took my DP with me and we stayed and we had a conversation afterwards because that was essential. I knew there was gonna be a lot of night scenes and there was gonna be a lot of sort of, um, there's possession scenes in the film and there's a beautiful love scene. And I wanted them to look spectacular. It's a dystopia, but that doesn't mean that we can't look good in it. So um, that was a very, very important. So then you go from the makeup and wardrobe and then you go to the DP and then costumes too. I had I had a very diverse team working with the costume department and making sure that we were getting clothes that also were good for black skin, that also were dystopian but not too crazy, and also that had a bit of tradition in them, but not your stereotypical, you know, like wrap up the head. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but this is 2049 and I wanted it to be a little bit more um, futuristic. So was it Bradford Young? Yes, Bradford Young. Yes, we got to see him. And my DP was Mark Ferrand before we started to shoot Bradford Young. And his work is ridiculously stunning. And he's now blown up like he's crazy. But I saw his work on Pariah, which is Dee Rees. Um, it's an, it was a feature, but I saw the short film as well. And he did such beautiful work on no money. And that was key. This is an indie, indie, tiny, micro, micro budget film. And I needed somebody who would really be able to work with that and not worth a lot of lights or a lot of time to light. He did a fantastic job, I have to say. And that's probably also going to help him in other things, whether or not he's working with actors of color, working in different lighting conditions, because he'll have all of these new tools that he learned working on your project. Totally. And having to work fast. Yeah. Right? Really having to, like, really, Mark, if you're listening, I know you hate me, but you did a great job. How long was your shoot? How long? It was 15 days. Wow. 15 days. So the average film, the average Hollywood film like Wonder Woman is about mm, three and a half months, right? That's just shooting. Then it's like three years prep and then, you know, like a year post. But yeah, usually it's, we had 15 days. Did they get to do kind of read throughs around a table or something before to get familiar? We did one rehearsal. Uh, one sort of read through and then it was like let's go like we just gotta go so uh, it was it was a fast-paced move but Muna Traore and Emmanuel Cabango who both play leads in the film are extremely talented this was Muna's first uh, lead role in a feature 
So she held up really well, especially since she had to like fight. She had to deal with spirits. She had a love scene. She um, was running through half the film. And also, both Muna and Emmanuel are African. They're not Caribbean. And I wanted them to just give a little flavor of Caribbean. So they also had to kind of work that in. They did a fantastic job. And, and we have a lot of really, really talented actors in Toronto. Like when we were going through the casting process, we have a lot of talented actors. The problem here is like the problem in any country that's uh, not America is everybody leaves because there are more prospects and more jobs and more money in America. So you sort of discover and find the talent here. And then by the time they're sort of in their late 20s, early 30s, when they, you know, really seasoned their craft, they're out of here. It, it seems like now there's a similar thing that's happening in the tech industry, though, where a lot of people are coming back. And if not permanently, they are coming back to work here or shoot here or develop their own work like you've done. So I think that uh, talent drain that is now going both ways. I hope so. And I think it might have something to do with the climate south of the border that people aren't really wanting to like hang out there. And also because the dollar is so low again, that a lot of American productions are coming back up here. So they're coming back up with an American production and then they're squeezing in a Canadian production while they're up here. Yeah. Yeah. And for some friends who work in post, um, they're not always now taking all the post work down with them. Yeah. 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 Or, or, um, hiring all the keys in Los Angeles. They're actually starting to hire keys here. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Yeah, Guillermo said his department heads, almost all of them were from Toronto. Really? Yeah. You gotta love Guillermo, right? Yeah, yeah. Big love Guillermo. It's great. So it really is helping to build up. So hopefully for all of your subsequent films, you'll get to take advantage of all of the great people you've worked with. Plus, you know, start to steal from these like other departments that have been growing in the Toronto industry. Totally. As long as tax credits keep happening. Yeah. Federal government. (laughs) I think so. I mean, they understand the value from not just job creation, but, you know, profile growing talent, education. I mean, it does continue to feed itself because it's a whole industry here. It's not just a location that people shoot in. It's an actual industry and a community. Yeah. And then the hotel industry, catering transportation, like all of those sectors in the city, right? Yeah, just our traffic situation is still a bit of a challenge when there's more than one big production going on. Yeah. Yeah, the summer of Suicide Squad, I still remember it was just like I was praying for the good old days of just, you know, regular streetcar construction. Right. Suicide Squad, just you couldn't get past Young because they were using it for all all over, all over. It was, uh, there was some stuff on King Street. There was at night, the Batmobile uh, sequence, they used Young. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so there was a chunk of time, like every evening where all of a sudden you just like, Queen just shut down. You had to, they were doing buses and stuff because you couldn't, they weren't running the streetcar. It was ridiculous. Right. Yeah. So right. we still struggle with that, but we, we like to complain about transit and weather in Toronto. So if there wasn't a big production once every couple of years ruining everything, we'd have nothing to complain about. No, it's so true. Because New York and L.A., that's just like par for the course, right? Yeah. Like your daily, that's just what they deal with all the time. Yeah. Or Vancouver yeah. with Deadpool. They had a lot of that as well, because that's another movie where, you know, you have a 
well, transplanted now, but Canadian, Ryan Reynolds, wanting to use a city that he loves and not hiding things, like not hiding that this is very mm. clearly part of Vancouver, which, you know, helps save money on a production because you don't have to, you know, use mm-hmm. effects to smooth it all out. But then you're also taking up chunks of the highway in the city. Yeah, but I'll take it. Yeah. Won't you take that? I'll yeah. take the transportation issues. Yeah. When you see something that, oh, it's that place I go to eat. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in our film, the CN Tower is prominent in our film because in the book, the CN Tower is actually the seat of power to the gods, right? So you need a you need a conduit to the gods. And so in Nala's book, she talks about the CN Tower being one of the tallest conduits to the gods. So it's in our film, like it's so prominent, it's on our poster. We didn't shy away from it because we were like, it actually is a conduit to the gods. Yeah, and then you, you know? don't have to hide this giant, beautiful piece of architecture that we have as yeah. part of our city. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. in the 15 days when you had Misha Bruger gosman performing, now I'm even more amazed that you were able to keep it moving before and after that because I would have just wanted to, you know, make up excuses for her to keep performing and just sit there. Right. Well, Misha Booker Ghostman, I have to say, she started out with just a little cameo in the film and she hasn't seen the film yet. I think she'll be quite shocked as to how much she's in the film because it started with just that little, she's singing at the edge of the water with the, with the CN Tower behind her and she's a spirit in the film. She plays Mama Ache in the film. But her performance and her presence was so big and so um, engaging we put her more into the film. We needed that spirit in the film. And also because I went through hell to shoot that scene through rain and then sound and and she was kind enough to come back like the another we had to push her day because of all the rain and the sound issues and all of that. Cuz yeah, it was great that we shot with the city behind us, but of course it's ships are coming in and boats are going by and we were shooting in November and there was some kind of caravana cruise happening. I was like Y'all know it's November, right? Like, why am I seeing a caravana cruise? I like, mean, I there's color people time, and then there's that that's just ridiculous. You know? That's, like that's a few months later. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Y'all know it's not August, right? Yeah. Caravana time. Anyway, we, I just remember us all looking out. We're all freezing. We have on our jackets, and it's like, oh, she a come, she a come. This Caravana Cruise thing. And it's supposed to be dystopia and post-apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People yeah. aren't supposed to be having a kiki in the apocalypse. You know yeah. what I'm saying? <laughs> anyway, so then Misha came back. So thank goodness she came back, and we ended up using her more after we survived all of that. So what was one of the fun surprises that came out of the material? It sounds like you got a little more Misha in the film than you thought you would. But I imagine in 15 days you get all this stuff and then you're going to assemble the project and you're seeing something maybe on screen that you weren't expecting while you were out there dealing with sound and time and traffic and noises. I know. I didn't realize directing is like 60% traffic control. Like, that's what it felt like, totally doing that and um, and Timekeeper. But one of the things that was quite beautiful in the film that happened was David Rudder, who's a Calypsonian, a very famous Trinidadian Calypsonian. I really wanted him in the film for two reasons. One, because I want him to be in the future. I want, 
and this is a futuristic film, and I was like, I want you to know that David Rudder, who for me represents a whole movement in popularizing Zilka, exists in the future. Some form of him will exist in the future. So in the future, we will have a black opera singer, and we will have a black Zilka singer. And so that was really important to me. But I think one of the surprises that came out for me is he plays a buff addict in the film. I think it's his acting debut. And there's a really touching scene between him and Tijan. And it's a really simple scene, but it was one of those that I shot like, oh, she's gonna go by, she's gonna, you know, fits in and then he's gonna go. But that scene actually sits with me a lot because he's singing a um, song for a, a lonely island. And it's, it's a song where he yearns to go home. And it's just a little snippet of that song, but because they're on an island off the mainland of Toronto, and he's from the island of Trinidad, I love all of that um, metaphor that's going on. I don't know if people see it, but for me, every time he sings that, I feel like he's singing about wanting to go home, but it could be home to the mainland of Toronto. It could be wanting to go home to a place where we have food and shelter and water and electricity, or it could be going home to our roots like back to Trinidad. So that was a beautiful scene that came out of that for me. That's great. I'm like yeah. really excited to see this movie. Good. Good. So good. Well, maybe your film can be my uh, TIFF methadone because I do always need to find something or a series of somethings to watch after the festival's over to kind of get over that need to consume good content. Come to New York. It's playing at Urban World. That's where it's premiering. September 23rd. Oh. Are, are you still going to be tiffing? No, I won't be tiffing, but yeah, tiffing like it pretty much empties the bank account. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. true. Yeah, it's for not sure, just movie sure. tickets. It's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, cabs and liquor to talk about the movies afterwards. Totally. So. And you have to have liquor. Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it's that dry conversation. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Oh, this is good. This is probably one of my best conversations without the aid of alcohol in years. Yeah. So I'm enjoying I'm drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so you did do a lot of prep to work on this, and you've basically your entire career been working not just in front of behind, but behind with everything mm-hmm. from Zed basically being a show about user generated content. Uh, which is a term that we use in the e-commerce wor- world as well. And you, you? yeah, user-generated content is a term for like when a website integrates uh, people's social posts about products. So, you know, you go to a site and sometimes you see people's, you know, fashion selfie posts and whatever. There's a whole uh, series of tools, uh, Candidio, Storybox, a bunch of things where you can, you know, drop a plugin into your site and then pull in content if somebody tags it with your stores hashtag and other things. And it's a way to bring people into the commerce experience. So you get that um, feeling of, I'm not just seeing the product on the site, but I'm seeing how it looks on someone in the world. Oh, cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like with the work you did early on with Zed and other things, like you were always preparing to direct because it's about sort of pulling in, all of these pieces and these collaborators and then presenting something. I love that you're saying that because that's how it feels. It feels like everything that's been happening along the way, even acting in front of the camera and then directing behind the camera has led me to this. 
because the way that I got interested in this project, I knew Nello from performing in Toronto. We were kind of in the same circles. Then I moved to LA and was struggling as an actor, couldn't get a job to save my life. Started going to UCLA for directing and I walked into a black bookstore, one of my favorite black bookstores in LA and saw Nalo's book on the shelf. That's what happened and then I was like, what, Nalo published? Pulled the book down, started reading it right there in the bookstore and I was like, I'm making this film. Like I am seriously making this film. And I had just started at UCLA so I really didn't know that much about directing. And then fast forward 15 years later, I was like, yeah, I'm making the film. And even when everybody said no, like I didn't get the money I wanted and the money got smaller and smaller and smaller and, and people started to drop out and they were like, you can't make this film, Sharon, for that little money. And I was like, I'm making this film. My grandmother has a saying, if I have to yam grass like Nebuchadnezzar, I go do it. And I was like, if I have to eat grass like Nebuchadnezzar, I go do it. And I did it. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, the universe meant for you to encounter that book at that time, I think. I think so. Yeah. And Nalo's been so supportive, too, because I was like, Nalo, just so we're all clear, this is not a black Wonder Woman. Okay, everybody? This is not a black Wonder Woman. It's a small coming-of-age story. And I'm cool with that. I just need peeps to know that. Yeah. And when I saw the title was Brown Girl Begins instead of Brown Girl in the Ring, like the book, first of all, I thought that's a good SEO choice because you already have the song Brown Girl in the Ring. And you know, you probably even know just from your name, let's get that SEO unique totally, for this title. Totally. But also it could be something that could, you know, convert into a series later. And I started to read the book. It's my lineup book now. And I was wondering about which characters that maybe either in the book um, you are really interested in that don't maybe get fully explored or even with your time that you had to do the film. Were there any characters that you were thinking, you know what, if I had maybe a 10 episode Netflix series, who would you really sort of blow out as a character and do a bottle episode on? Are you like reading my mind? Do you know that we're working on a TV series called The Burn? No, I just... I don't know. Yes. I watch too yes. much stuff. I'm always thinking <laughs> of what else somebody could do with something. And I'm always excited when they actually end up doing that thing. Like when they made Dear White People a series afterwards. Totally. Yeah. No, it's called The Burn. And it's, um, I've already hired a writer. We're working on the first draft of a pilot. And we have a couple of people interested. And for me, what's in the pilot and what's in the TV series that we could never have explored in the film is in the book, there's all this thing about um, selling organs to the rich, a which is a huge thing that is happening that we just didn't have the time or the resources to address in the film. So that's definitely a big, big part of the TV series. So the relationship, you don't really see the rich people in my film. We don't have money to go shoot rich people. You see them in the background represented by the CN Tower. But in the TV series, I want you to see that disparity and I want you to see that relationship that we're literally having to sell parts of our body to survive. Like that's deep, isn't that deep? That there are people around the world that will call you up and go, do you want my kidney so that I can feed my kid? That's deep to me. So Nalo saw that way before I was ever aware of it because she wrote the book in 1994. And I'm like, that's got to be in the TV series. Yeah, the yeah. appropriation isn't just cultural, it's actually physical. Right? 
that's like I can't get my head wrapped around that. That like, yeah, we're not talking about imperialism. We're talking about literally carving out people's bodies and selling it. Yeah, organs yeah. that they need to live. Yeah. Harvesting, harvesting. I mean, I think about uh, Jupiter. Uh, that movie, and I can't even remember oh, the name. Right. Now. Yeah, Jupiter Ascending. That movie you know didn't do that well but that whole concept of harvesting a planet for its resources and those resources only being available to the super rich that live in a completely different space i mean it's a theme that persists because it is what's happening in so many ways already right now in the real world and around the world, like it crosses boundaries, right? Like it's not just people of color, it's poor, like poor all over the world. So it's, um, yeah, we're gonna address that in the TV series. And also Brown Girl Begins is before Tijan gets all her full powers. And in the TV series, this will be when she has her full powers. Excellent. So, so the film leads up to her kind of finally accepting her power. And then in the book, she's, she's full on. So she's like, she's a superhero. So in the TV series, we'll, you'll see her more of a superhero, I think. That's fantastic. Because okay. I just think that, first of all, origin stories, you don't need to keep repeating an origin story. And I'm just going to say Spider-Man. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like how many Spider-Man origin, origin stories do we need? Yeah. So it'd be great yeah. to have a series start off with, you know, any kind of character woman of color, you know, yeah. cis male, Caucasian superhero, whatever, totally. start off like they're already doing their thing. And totally. like, yeah, I got this. And I'm just handling things. Yeah, right. And then I have to say my dream would be to, can I please, can somebody give me, I'll even do it on $10 million, a black Wonder Woman. Can I? Can I please? That would be, I. I think that that's the kind of thing that, we're closer to than we realize, but it still seems way too far away. Yeah. But and I guess in a sense, Tijon, who's the protagonist, is our Black Wonder Woman. Yeah. Well, she's she's our Tijon. She doesn't have to be our Black Wonder Woman. She can be Tijon. Speak the truth. Yeah. That's so true. That is so true. Yeah. yeah these... We don't need to call it Black Wonder Woman. She's our Tijon. Yeah. Our characters, anybody's characters... I think there's such a thirst now for new content Mm. that it's making it easier for things to break through if you can get the word out there for things to find the audience. Because people want to be surprised. They want to see new stories. And that's, I think, one thing with the sort of lamentation over the box office this summer. You can see trends in what did break bigger and yes, there's, you know, sequels and superhero content, but there's also, you know, completely unique stories in 2017 that broke through, I think, not just because they were executed well, but because you actually got to walk in and be surprised. You didn't know what a movie by Jordan Peele was going to be like, and then you got there and you were surprised. That was a genius movie, though, right? That was a genius movie. It had this whole political message going on, but on the surface just seemed like a horror movie. I just thought that was a genius, genius on his side. Yeah. Yeah. And the Girl's Trip movie where you're, you know, you had Rough Night and 
that came out first and then you're thinking oh this is going to be one of those weird things that happens in Hollywood where they have two very similar movies come out at the same time but I was not I was going to see it anyway obviously Mm. Uh, but it was so much funnier than I expected and I brought a male friend uh, that I hadn't seen in a while and he was I don't know if I want to see this it looks basically just like really dirty and raunchy and whatever and about a quarter of the way through the movie as we're gasping for breath he's like I just didn't think it would be this funny and it's are you serious (laughs) I mean I hated that movie (laughs) I hated that movie I got all my girls together I was like we're gonna check it out we went and I was like first of all I know that it it was just so hetero it drove me insane yeah it was so hetero like it, it was like too much like I just couldn't take it that it's just the assumption that all of us want dick like I was just it was too much I couldn't take it I what I did like was how profane the conversations were because there is still this thing of when women are talking to each other um, it's supposed to be so surprising and risque but there wasn't any apology for them being fully completely who they were with each other and when their friendship started was you know university age at a time where you are probably you're most likely you're away from your parents you you know can just swear in conversation and not have to look over your shoulder or wait to get smacked upside the head so that I did love that they got to be the way women are when there's no one else around. I loved that too. And I thought that they dealt with the class issue really well. Yeah. I thought that was cool that they really like the, the woman that was not of the same socioeconomic class as them. They didn't shy away from that and that she spoke her truth and sort of, I loved that. Like they dealt with class, which is great because when you have all black women, then you can start to delve into all the little things that separate them. Right. So I thought that was cool. Yeah. I don't know if I would have liked that movie as much in another year but i think in 2017 i just needed to see that i just needed to see a bunch of black women having a good time together and enjoying themselves and laughing because yeah right now it's it's rough out there yeah and you know what i'm happy that we're having a conversation about a film that exists because we don't have to love it and it doesn't have to speak to all black women everywhere that is the privilege of white films yeah that they they can only they can speak to a certain sector and a niche and whatever so i love that you love girls trip and that maybe it wasn't for me but that we can actually have a conversation because a year ago we weren't talking about any film with four black women as the lead we actually have choices now in the yes. content that's produced so you don't have that same feeling of obligation that you have to watch every project of color because yes. there's so few yes and that you have to love it like i love that there's dear white people there's chewing gum there's insecure there's uh, stars there like like imagine that i'm naming all of these yeah 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 i watched all of awkward black girl on youtube before she blew up yeah and then i think when insecure first started I had a few challenges just because it was, I almost recoiled against the production value of HBO. Like I liked the dingy office and like that uncomfortable meeting space that they had yeah. in the YouTube series. Yeah. So I had to get over the fact that everything looks so good. 
Yeah. Although yeah. now I love the production value in it. Yeah. Like I, I actually love how gorgeous it looks and how beautiful she looks and how beautiful everybody looks. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm like sure it. that's a makeup trailer where you don't have to carry your own cocoa butter. It's already you know there. what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. everybody I'll make looks the lips smaller. Yeah, everyone's all glowed up and beautiful. Yeah, yeah, cocoa butter in the trailer. You don't have to bring your own. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. That's, that's a production note on every script. Yeah, my secret shame uh, that's not that secret is I still haven't seen Twelve Years a Slave. That's okay. It's a hard film. Yeah. I feel like you have to prepare for that film. Yeah. The the slavery trope. Slave narrative. It's up there. It's, I've seen, especially going to TIFF, I've seen a lot of Holocaust movies, a lot of slavery mm. movies, a lot of whatever. And around a few years ago, I kind of hit like peak um, emotional uh, savagery. Mm-hmm. In, so new stories about people going mm-hmm. through the unimaginable but especially slavery because they look like us and mm-hmm. that i struggle with that and i'd seen c mcqueen's other projects and after i saw what he did with you know starvation and sex addiction i was like i can't because mm-hmm. i know what this guy can do mm-hmm. and i know what he made me feel about those topics and i was mm-hmm. legit like i am not ready because i know it's going to be sort of exquisite and just wrenching and watching that happen to people that look like us that I struggle with still. And then watching it in a public theater. Yeah. Right? Like for me, that was so challenging because there were parts where I I remember watching it and there was a a white person and they didn't laugh, but there was kind of like a, uh, like a, a lightness to their reaction. And I wanted to hurt them. Like I was like, you how? Or they put popcorn in their mouth or something. It was something, you know, of course, they're at a film and that's what they did. But I'm like, you don't understand. Like you can't do that with this film. You can't do that with this film. You can't do that with any Steve McQueen film, but especially that one. So Yeah. Yeah. I true. know oh I God. will watch it. But it's something that I'm constantly kind of stealing myself for. And I will be alone and there won't be snacks and you know, I'll need to have a lot of things queued up afterwards. A lot of self-care afterwards. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've kind of exhausted my default uh, self-care move, which is watching the last half hour of Disney movies. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Just, just the ends. <laughs> yeah. So no I Mufasa have... dying, but all like Hakuna, <laughs> Hakuna Matata on. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say what I've loved about this conversation is that we have been able to name so many films. That is such a beautiful thing. When we did Rude, like in 1994, there was Rude, there was um, Soul Survivor, and then there were Spike Lee films, and that was it. That was it. Yeah. it's. So it was no, we would never be talking about four black women because that didn't happen till, um, uh, oh my God, what was set it? Set it off? Set it off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. there was a nice set it off nod in Girl's Trip. Yeah, there was yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah. yeah and yeah. and it, it did harken back to another time. And you think of, you know, while that movie was amazing, it still was heavily steeped in stereotypes. Yes. And that's yeah. probably why it was allowed to be made. Yes, of course. So to see the evolution of 
those two women in their careers and have that moment. It wasn't just a nod for fans of that film. I feel like it was a nod for look at what we're allowed to be now. Totally. And isn't it nice that we can say, and they have careers? Yeah. Like they have careers because how many times, well, we've been watching the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air with my son and we're rewatching it. And, you know, there's all these actors coming through and you're like, wow, never saw them again, never saw them again, never saw, right? And so it's so nice that there are actors that have careers. And there's just more to choose from now. People are getting more opportunities so they don't just have to say yes to the first thing if they think the subject matter is problematic. Yeah. They're allowed to say no or say yes, but can we yeah. talk about the portrayal of this character? Yeah. Well, Matula, it was very nice to chat to you. It was, this was marvelous. And this yeah. was exactly what I needed as kind of an adrenaline boost mid-tiff was I head into the back 15. Man. Yeah, my knees and back are tired, but my soul is fed right now. So. Right? Yeah. Yay! Yeah. And the liquor can handle my knees and back, so. Right. <laughs> We're all awesome. good. Awesome. In a tip, I love it. In yeah. a tip. And yeah. your talk again, what's the location for that? If somebody happens to listen to this uh, early tomorrow and wants to see if they can get into it? So it's September 14th, which is Thursday, 6 to 9 p.m. at uh, 19 Brock Street, which is Brock and Queen in Toronto. And um, So can people just come through? Is there yeah, a ticket? Yeah, or? I, think, I think the tickets are sold there. I'm not sure the price of the ticket, but uh, but I know it'll be worth it. I know it'll be worth it because it's not just me on the panel. It's a bunch of young filmmakers as well who have a lot to say. And who doesn't want to be talking about what we look like in the media? Because there's something going on right now, right? Like there's a zeitgeist happening right now. There's an energy happening right now. Like we're talking about, there's all kinds of choices. So let's make it matter. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, thank cool. you so much. Thank and you. And I will for sure find a way to get to your movie, even if I don't get to New York. But as soon as you get details, I'll be sharing them through social media. And we'll include links on the page for how people can follow you and Sweet. find out more about your movie and hear you talk. Sweet. All right. Sweet. All right. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye.